Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is Winners and Losers, How the Great Hunger Ended. I'm going to get straight into this one, folks. I think the title spells out where we're going, but you'll be spending the next 30 minutes in one of Ireland's great stately homes at a New Year's Eve ball in 1850, where we're going to get a unique insight into how the famine ended very differently for different people. This will bring us stories of extreme wealth and generosity, as well as greed and evictions. This is the second last show in the Great Famine series, but I already have another series in the making called Partisans. There's going to be more on that later in the show, but now let's start this episode. In spite of the Great Famine, for some at least, the approach of Christmas 1850 and the social occasions that accompanied it was something to look forward to. In Kilkenny, the event of the season was unquestionably the New Year's Eve ball being held by John and Francis Butler, the Marcus and Marchioness of Ormond. On December the 31st, 1850, in the opulent surroundings of their residence of Kilkenny Castle, they would entertain over 300 people to mark the new year. Invitations to the ball were not only desired, but they were an indication of status the local newspaper, the Kilkenny Journal, called the guests the elite of the county. However, this was something of an understatement. The butlers were not just at the apex of life in Kilkenny. They were one of Ireland's oldest and most influential aristocratic families, with connections that ran all the way to the corridors of power in London. The Marcus John Butler kept regular correspondence with politicians at the highest level, and Queen Victoria herself referred to him as My Dear Ormond. His wife Frances, the Marchioness, was a personal friend of the Dowager Queen, that's the widow of Queen Victoria's predecessor, William IV. Now while the guests could expect to mix with the most powerful Irish people of the age, the butler's family home of Kilkenny Castle enhanced the sense of occasion and exclusivity of the ball. As was customary on such occasions, they were going to open the entire building, including their own private apartments, to the guests who would see grandeur on a level even Ireland's wealthy were unaccustomed to. Kilkenny Castle had been built back around 1200, 
but a series of renovations had transformed the medieval fortress into a stately home. The narrow arrow loops, a reminder of an even more violent age, had been replaced by windows. The moat, long since obsolete by the 19th century, had been filled in. And once the guests stepped inside the entrance hall, there was scarcely a sign of the original medieval building. Walking across a chequered floor of white marble and black Kilkenny limestone, they were led up a grand staircase and into a world of splendour. The family dining room was adorned with a unique set of enormous tapestries, while the library contained artwork by some of Europe's most famous artists, including a prized possession of the family of Charles I, the 17th century king who lost his head in the English Civil War. However, it was the room known as the Long Gallery that overawed the guests. This was a gargantuan ballroom, unlike anything else in Kilkenny. Indeed, there were few places in Ireland that could have rivalled it. With an oak parquet floor, it measured 45 metres in length, 9 metres in width, and about 10 metres from floor to ceiling, taking up an entire wing of the castle. It was here the butlers and their guests would mark the passing of 1850 and the birth of 1851, and in an event that challenged stereotypes of Victorian society, the dancing continued until after four in the morning, or at least for some it did. Because in order for these guests to enjoy the ball in these luxurious surroundings, an army of servants had been employed to wait on them hand and foot. They toiled away in the two floors beneath the long gallery, almost out of sight and certainly out of mind. As if in a completely different building, these servants moved through a network of narrow staircases and passageways, entirely obscured from view, which allowed them to emerge largely unseen, to replenish a wine glass here or remove an empty glass there. To ensure the food, drink and indeed extra staff were all ready and in place, months of planning had gone into the event. However, before any of these preparations could be carried out, the hosts, John and Francis Butler, had first to weigh up how an event like this would be received in wider society, because had they held this ball in previous years, it would have provoked outrage in the city. In the months before Christmas 1850, John and Francis Butler must have given serious consideration as to whether they should hold the ball at all. John Butler a deeply popular man in the locality, risked losing his reputation if he misjudged this. Inequality was accepted in society. However, a public display of wealth in the midst of a famine could provoke a reaction, particularly when it was at a private party as opposed to a charitable event. Certainly, there was no way they could have held the event on the scale they planned in the previous three years when famine conditions in Kilkenny had been truly appalling. Food prices in those years had spiralled and the poor could no longer afford to eat. At harvest time in 1846, when crops should have been plentiful, potatoes were already at twice their normal price. That situation deteriorated rapidly in the following two years. After the harvest of 1847 and 1848, there were no potatoes whatsoever available at market in Kilkenny around harvest time. The situation finally had started to ease in 1849 when a healthy crop translated into potatoes returning to the market at more reasonable prices, but this didn't signal an end of the Great Famine. Even after that, the butlers needed to be careful about displaying their wealth. The debt rate in the city had remained frightful. During Black 47, the worst year of the famine, there had been around 2,100 deaths in the city, five times the pre-famine average. 
While it had improved in 1848, it surged again in 1849 to over 1,600 deaths as cholera devastated the weakened population. It was really only in 1850 that the death rate fell considerably to just over 900 people and it was clear the worst of the famine had passed. However, even though the situation was improving, suffering continued depending on individual experiences over the previous few years. Even at Christmas 1850, five years after the start of the Great Hunger, while John Butler felt he could go ahead with the ball, there was no question it would still overshadow the event. They did their best to hide the ongoing crisis in Irish society, and maybe to a stranger the opulence in the castle would have seemed like proof the worst was over. Perhaps for the likes of Lord Edward Paget, the younger brother of the Marchioness who had travelled from his home in England to spend Christmas in Kilkenny, the extent of how the famine was still affecting Irish society was hard to spot. However, looks can be deceptive, particularly from the standpoint of an aristocrat in a castle. Had Edward Paget asked any of the servants, they would have told him things were improving, but their lives and the lives of their families and friends was one of continued and very serious difficulties. The famine was not over for these people. For the poor who had lost their homes and employment, no matter what the price, they could still not afford to buy food. And too poor to emigrate, the workhouse was often one of the few options open to them. Paget, however, was very unlikely to have engaged the servants in any kind of meaningful conversation. However, he may well have garnered some sense of what was happening in Ireland from the guests at the ball. Even though they waltzed around the long gallery in ball gowns, they were not immune from the ongoing effects of the great hunger. While a few would have willingly talked about their woes, as the evening wore on and they worked their way through John Butler's wine cellar, surely someone's alcohol-loosened lips issued forth the dreaded words encumbered the state's court. While the rich might not have feared starvation or the dreaded workhouse, behind the false forced smiles and the ostentatious displays of inherited wealth, an anxiety, even a fear about the future, haunted many of the guests in the castle. It was hardly a surprise, given the enormity of what had just happened in Ireland. Around one in ten people across the island had died, and around an equal number had emigrated in just five years. The population of County Kilkenny had already fallen by 20%, while the city was in total freefall. By 1861, the population had declined by nearly 50% over the previous three decades. The forces these huge changes had unleashed on Irish society through economic collapse were profound. Indeed, the final stage of the Great Hunger, well underway in 1850, was a sobering moment for even the rich. Decades of their devil-may-care attitude to their finances and wider Irish society was coming back to haunt them. Worse still, recent government action had combined with this to prolong and indeed exacerbate the final stages of the Great Hunger. To an extent, the New Year's Eve ball in Kilkenny Castle symbolised everything that was wrong with the elite of Irish society in the mid-19th century. While the Butler family could afford the grandeur that seeped from every corner and crevice of Kilkenny Castle, all too many landlords tried to ape this. Those with far more modest resources still enjoyed the trappings of an indulgent lifestyle far beyond their means. At the same time, they were poor businessmen and mismanaged their estates, which could not sustain their exorbitantly lavish lifestyles. While it often took decades, some of them had squandered fortunes that had been amassed over centuries. Indeed, John Butler, the host of the ball, knew the risks of this only too well. 
Even though a portrait of his uncle Walter Butler hung in the long gallery, gazing down on the New Year's Eve ball, this man had very nearly bankrupted the Butler family through an indulgent lifestyle a few decades earlier. While the renovations at Kilkenny Castle testified to the fact that the Butlers had been saved in no small part by advantageous marriages to wealthy heiresses, the famine for many families had proved a watershed moment. The entire rural economy broke down and for those who had adopted a carefree attitude toward their finances, they very quickly found themselves in serious trouble. By 1846, landlords, especially those with large numbers of poor tenants and labourers living on their lands, saw their rental incomes dwindle. The poor, struggling to eat, had naturally stopped paying most or all of their rent. As the famine deepened, it dragged in many larger tenants and they too stopped paying rents. These financial problems were compounded by rising poor tax bills used to fund famine relief. While it was becoming clear the famine might well bankrupt many landlords, at the same time their tenants were increasingly facing starvation. This asked major questions of landlords and their decisions had profound consequences for how the famine played out on their estates. It highlighted how the end of the famine could vary not only from region to region but within localities due to decisions taken by individual landlords. Indeed, two of the most powerful men at the ball could not have adopted more differing approaches to the financial impact of the famine and these approaches sculpted the contours of the final stages of the Great Hunger on these lands in County Kilkenny. By 1850, the Marcus of Ormond, John Butler, was actually considered to be one of the best landlords in Ireland, a reputation enhanced by his reactions during the Great Famine. He was among a small minority of landlords who, when faced with the crisis, seemed to have factored in how his tenants would be affected when he decided what he would do. Indeed, he was even included on something called the Golden List of Landlords, compiled by the Repeal Association. He earned this by granting rent reductions each year between 1847 and 1850, a measure that shielded his tenants from the worst excesses of the famine and left them well positioned to recover when the economy began to pick up. While these measures helped larger tenants, Butler also enacted schemes to aid the desperately poor by providing work for nearly 300 labourers on his estates at Gary Ricken and Kilcash for two years, a measure which was estimated to have kept 1,200 people out of the workhouse. While Butler had chosen this course of action, essentially putting the lives of his tenants first, one of his guests on New Year's Eve, the Earl of Desert, had earned a notorious reputation in the county for his reaction to the crisis. His family had long been considered rack-renting landlords, basically charging exorbitant rents. On one estate at Callan, a town to the southwest of Kilkenny City, tenants claimed he was charging around three times the actual value of the land. As the tenants faced increasingly difficult times, these high rents were crippling, but Desert refused to budge, and nine of the original 25 tenants on that estate had been forced to emigrate by 1849. This tough stance by Desert appears to have had the ultimate goal of ridding himself of smaller tenants. On other lands around Callan, he accelerated the process through evictions. In an all-too-familiar story, he consolidated the farms of the evicted tenants and rented them out to a wealthy man in Callan, the apothecary of the town, a certain Dr Cronin. While Butler and the Earl of Desert were examples of two reactions, there was also a third group of landlords who did not take any action themselves. Instead, the action was taken for them, and it was these group of people 
whose fate terrified the guests at the New Year's Eve ball. These people had ended up in the dreaded encumbered estates court. This largely affected people who'd been living on borrowed time and more importantly on borrowed money for far too long. As the end of the Great Famine approached, their debts had been called in and they were about to go to the wall. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. As the clock neared 12 that night and the guests in Kilkenny Castle reflected back on what had been an extremely difficult time, some of them struggled to be in any way optimistic about the future, even if the worst of the famine was over. As we've already seen, the famine had pushed many estates to the brink. Now, in times past, Irish landlords would have turned to the British government for support in this situation. However, the political landscape was changing and politics was moving on. The Liberal government ideologically committed to introducing free market economics into all aspects of life had little interest in intervening to prop up bankrupt landlords who had shown little ability to manage their own affairs. Indeed, the Liberals blamed these landlords for the famine and were adamant they needed to be replaced. They saw them as a dead weight. Charles Wood, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, spelled out the government plan to let them go to the war when he said, There's no real prospect of regeneration for Ireland until substantial proprietors possessed of capital and the will to improve their estates are introduced into the country. To achieve these goals, they introduced the Encumbered Estates Act. Under its terms, once a landlord's total debt amounted to half one year's rental income on their estates, their creditors could go to the Encumbered Estates Court and get the estate forcibly sold in a fast-tracked process. The landlords had no say in the decision and to make matters worse, they were being forced to sell at the worst possible moment. The Irish economy was at rock bottom and large amounts of land were going on the market so prices plummeted. By the 1850s, land values had fallen in some cases by 60%. For these old families, this was not just an economic shock, but it was a massive psychological blow as well. A few months before the New Year's Eve ball in 1850, the Earl of Ranfurly, a landlord in County Tyrone, had written to John Butler voicing his concerns. They spoke of an intention in the House of Lords to have a committee to inquire into the proceedings of the Commissioner of the Encumbered Estates. Surely there ought to be some drag put on them. There appears to be a great disregard for the interests of proprietors and often of creditors. There would be no drag, as Ranfurly had hoped, on the actions of the Encumbered Estates Court and in the end a staggering 25% of all land in Ireland was forcibly sold by the court. 
Now, each of the three options I've outlined so far, that's the responsible approach taken by John Butler, the ruthless approach taken by the Earl of Desert, or having the estate forcibly sold at the encumbered estates court, had a massive impact and dictated how long and the course of the famine, even for poor tenants on these estates. For example, in Gary Ricken, where John Butler had helped the poorest labourers by providing work on his lands, the population actually increased there during the famine. A remarkable statistic, given the overall population in the wider parish of Kilamery, fell by 22%. This, along with the fact that there were no evictions on Butler's estates, left his tenants in a position to recover quickly from the famine. When healthy harvests returned, they had access to land to grow crops and sustain themselves. The same, however, cannot be said for all too many others. The tenants, for example, of the Earl of Desert, who had been pushed off their lands, were in a desperate position. These people had little hope in the future. With no access to land, they were not in a position to take advantage of the improved harvests in many cases and could not afford to emigrate and fell into a desperate cycle of poverty and the workhouse that did not end in 1849 or 1850 when it seemed like some semblance of normality was returning to Ireland. A similar fate often awaited the poor who lived on estates sold in the encumbered estates court the new owners of these estates, 96% of whom were Irish, contrary to popular beliefs, often bought the land as an investment. To maximise their profits, they frequently cleared their estates of poor tenants, replacing them with livestock, especially cattle, which was more profitable. Again, for these evicted tenants, just like those of the Earl of Desert, a life of inescapable poverty awaited them. Indeed, on the night of the New Year's Eve ball in late 1850, there were still 3,000 people in the Kilkenny workhouse. The ball in Kilkenny Castle may as well have been happening on another planet for these people as they bedded down in the overcrowded, filthy workhouse dormitories with no future. In many cases, their lives were utterly ruined and they had little chance of ever fully recovering. Having lost their homes, they found themselves in an economy where work was hard to come by and wages were falling through the floor. With such a large pool of people desperate for work, larger tenant farmers and landlords alike exploited this. Dr Cronin, for example, who had taken over the lands of the evicted tenants at Callan, paid wages of sixpence a day without food for labourers when wages previously had been around eightpence a day before the famine. Others were willing to exploit the situation even more ruthlessly, showing wanton disregard for the lives of the poor. In Canturk, County Cork, among the numerous cases for non-payment of wages taken before the courts, it emerged one farmer, a man called Green, had paid a labourer one penny a day. This wasn't a crime at the time, but the case ended up in court when he attempted to pay the labourer half a penny per week. This labourer, a man called Walsh, claimed he was fed worse than pigs on the farm. The court on that occasion found in the poor man's favour. While the vast majority of the population were affected by the transformation underway on farms across Ireland, among the inmates in the Kilkenny workhouse on New Year's Eve 1850 may well have included a very different group of people. That's Kilkenny's weavers. Their experience of the famine highlighted not just the scale of how this catastrophe changed nearly all aspects of life in Ireland, but also how its end took very different forms for different people. But first, before we look at this, a word about that new series that's coming. Hi folks, thanks for downloading the show, I really appreciate it. There's one final episode in the Great Famine series to go after today's show, but as I mentioned at the start of the episode, I'm already preparing the next series. 
I'm super excited about this. It's called Partisans. I'm a look at the experiences of Irish people who participated in the Spanish Civil War, which is one of the most famous civil wars in European history. It took place between 1936 and 1939 and is often considered a prelude to World War II. It's remembered for the heroism, bravery and idealism of many of those involved in the conflict, but it was also a pitiless and brutal war, which saw the Nazis and Italian fascists support an attempted coup by Spanish generals, while the Soviet Union supported the Spanish Communist Party and the Republican government. While the battles took place in Spain, thousands of people from across the world travelled to fight to support the side they believed in. The series Partisans will look at the stories of eight Irish people involved in the war on both sides. In the coming weeks, I will be releasing a more detailed promo on Partisans. This series will also be the first time the podcast has come out on a weekly basis, This is because I've been able to bring a researcher, that's Stuart Redden, on board to help with the series. So when it launches in November, you'll have five shows in a row up to Christmas, and then we'll pick up the story again after Christmas with another five. This is only possible because of the support of listeners who have become patrons at Patreon. Their support not only funds my research, but it also allows me to expand and grow the show. In return, they get features like exclusive early access to advert-free episodes, the episode guides and exclusive shows. For example, in the run-up to the launch of Partisans, I will be releasing special episodes on the wider context of the Spanish Civil War for patrons. If you want to get these features and support the show, sign up today at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. I also like to thank patrons. And this week, I want to say a special thanks to Maureen Gallivan, Damien Drum, Eric Reed, David Boyle, Michael Gumbert, Judith Forkin Capoon, Neil Homan, Matt and Greg Lockery. Now back to the 1840s to hear the story of Kilkenny's Weavers, a group whose lives had been more or less destroyed during the Great Famine. In the days following the New Year's Eve ball, the newspapers around Ireland carried what was an incomplete list of those who had attended. While his name was not included, it would have constituted a glaring omission on the part of the Butler family if one of Kilkenny's leading industrialists, Kenny Scott, had not received an invite. Scott, in 1850, was spearheading what some were interpreting as an economic recovery of sorts in the city. Indeed, he was being hailed by national newspapers as an example for others to follow. At the ball, whether he was present or not, surely someone would have mentioned the Ormond Woollen Mills, the large factory Scott ran along the banks of the River Nore in Kilkenny, just to the south of the castle. There he was employing increasing numbers of people. Indeed, he couldn't find enough staff, it was said. This was all the more impressive given Kilkenny's woollen industry had been on the verge of extinction only a few years previously. Many decades earlier, the industry had been central to the economy of Kilkenny, and around the year 1800, the workforce had numbered over 3,000 people and their wages had supported a further 7,000 people in the city. However, in the following decades, the Kilkenny mills struggled to compete with the technologically more advanced mills in Britain. While these had switched to steam-powered looms, the Kilkenny mills continued to use looms worked by highly skilled but slower weavers. Even before the onset of the Great Famine, the numbers employed had dwindled, standing at the low hundreds at most, and the mills faced a very grave future. However, in late 1846, 
Kenny Scott took to the decision to introduce power looms into the Ormond Mills, which would allow him to compete against rival industries in the north of England. The weavers who operated the hand looms, which were now being replaced, had long anticipated this moment, and rather than oppose the introduction of the power looms, they only asked that they would be kept on to operate the new machines. However, Kenny Scott had other plans. In a country where thousands were desperate for work, he intended to drive down wages. He sacked the old weavers in order to replace them with young, unskilled women who could be exploited in poor conditions for considerably lower wages. The weavers outlined the situation facing them in early 1846 as the famine was beginning to really hit the poor. They addressed a public letter to Kenny Scott. At this time of public alarm, while good men of every creed and political opinion are devising every means to employ or feed them, you are discharging your operative weavers. Scott did not budge and the weavers were plunged into dire straits. By 1848 they were so impoverished they petitioned the poor law guardians of Kilkenny to help them emigrate, but this was rejected. Over a year later, in July 1849, they approached Kilkenny City Council again asking for aid to emigrate. This was also refused. They were trapped in a city where their old jobs were increasingly obsolete and they appear to have been blacklisted. While their fate may seem unrelated to the famine, it reflects a wider trend in society where major economic and social changes were being pushed through. The chaos of the famine undermined the ability of the poor to organise resistance while it also guaranteed there would always be large numbers of desperate people willing to take work at any price. By 1850, when the situation in Kilkenny was improving, it did not hurl a return to life as the weavers had once known it. While Kenny Scott secured increasing numbers of contracts and his business was doing well, he would even state that the present time is more favourable for promotion of Irish manufacture than any other in the last 40 years. The weavers found themselves absolutely destitute. According to one worker, by 1852, wages had halved in the Ormond Mills since the introduction of power looms. The experience of Kilkenny's weavers is just one of the countless stories of how the Great Famine had devastated life as they had known it. As we will see next, trying to put an end point on the famine for many of these people is very, very difficult. As the guests left Kilkenny Castle at 4am on that cold New Year's Eve morning, in the opening hours of 1851, they returned home through the darkness to their respective worlds, their respective futures. For some facing the encumbered estates court, the economic catastrophe that accompanied the famine still had to take its ultimate effect. For others, the famine was more or less over. For example, Kenny Scott, whose business was thriving, was surely hopeful about what lay ahead. However, it was ultimately the poor who had borne the brunt of the great hunger. The encumbered estates court did unquestionably transform the lives of the rich families who lost their estates, but graves across the island testified to a much worse experience for the poor. There was a large degree of truth in what Karl Marx had said about the Great Famine when he quipped, It killed poor devils only. In April 1851, only a few months after the New Year's Eve ball, a census was conducted in Ireland, and this indicated that around one million people had perished in the previous five years, although this might be an underestimate. By this point, another million had emigrated as well. The population had fallen by nearly 25%. The overall population decrease in some parts of the island had been utterly staggering. The worst affected province, Connacht, comprising of the counties Mayo, Galway, Roscommon, Sligo and Leitrim, had lost 30% of its people. 
Munster experienced a decline of 23%. In Ulster and Leinster, where the effects of the famine had always been less devastating, the impact was nevertheless stark as the population had fallen in both regions by over 15%. These often cited statistics, however, obscure, more fundamental changes underway in the Irish economy that prolonged the misery well after that census was taken. Emigration figures bear this out. 1852 would witness the highest level of emigration in Irish history when a jaw-dropping 370,000 people left the island in that year. That's more than 5% of the entire population in that one year alone. It would take another three years until 1855 before the numbers emigrating each year even fell below 100,000, which itself is still a massive figure by any measure. A few episodes ago, I quoted the English historian Cecil Woodham Smith when she said, referring to the conclusion of the Great Famine, The famine was never over in the sense that an epidemic is over. The poverty of the Irish people continued. Dependence on the potato continued. Failure of the potato, to a greater or lesser extent, continued. And hunger continued. Her words best explain the end of the famine for the poor anyway. It is true it had eased in most parts of the island around 1850. The horrific death rate that had gripped the country between 1846 and 1849 subsided. However, life for many did not return to normality. In the summer of 1855, there were still 2,000 people in three workhouses across North Kilkenny. This figure was about three times the pre-famine numbers, even though the population had fallen by 20%. While this podcast has focused on Kilkenny, the situation in the West was even worse. Outright starvation continued in some parts into the early 1850s and the slow return to where survival was not constantly in question was not easy. Through this episode on the end of the famine, I have cited no specific year when it ended. This is intentional. It may leave you with a sense that it's unfinished or open-ended, but that best reflects Ireland's emergence from the Great Hunger. It would haunt the island for decades, arguably maybe even a century. Specific dates don't help us understand this process. I think understanding the end of the famine as a slow process that takes place through the 1850s without referencing a specific year better reflects the situation. Hopefully in this podcast you have garnered a sense of how the end of the Great Famine was very different for different people often shaped by class background, experiences and their economic position at the beginning of the famine. The story of the Great Hunger can't be easily put in a box and labelled with an end date like 1851 as is often the case. That would be certainly very hard to explain to the 2,000 people who found themselves in the Kilkenny workhouses in 1855. The famine did not seem over for them. It is true many of those people had lived in poverty before the famine, but in many cases the few certainties they had enjoyed then, a home with access to an acre or two of land and a community to which they belonged, had been destroyed in the previous five years. That could never be rebuilt. In the next and final episode, I'll be looking at the legacy of these events. Watch out for that full promo of Partisans which will be released in the next 10 days and then I'll be back with that episode on The Legacy. Until then, Sloan. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.